particularly because we're talking about Memorial Day today, and uh, many people have kind of conjectured what uh, Memorial Day, where its origins are, and where it comes from. But first and foremost, I just want to tell you that as a um, as an American, I am grateful for the freedoms that we have in these great United States. And I uh, have never had the honor of serving in the United States military. I have had friends who have done so. Um, I have friends who are serving there now, and I'm grateful for the sacrifices that the men and women uh, have made in our nation for us to have the freedoms that we have today. And we are indeed a very blessed um, and privileged people to be able to worship the way that we do, to live the way that we do, to say the things that we say here in these United States. And, and having been uh, around the world and traveled in different places, um, I have a greater appreciation for that now than what I did as a younger person, but I am so grateful that we live here in these United States and grateful for all of you who have served um, to defend that freedom, to provide those things for us, even and especially the things that I'm in disagreement with. I am grateful that we live in a nation where we can have those freedoms to do so. But I pray for our nation. I mourn for our nation because we are in a challenging time in our history where we are moving from a place of freedom of to freedom from. And I fear that when we get to more of freedom from than freedom of, that we will lose our absolute identity and all the things that we hold dear and true. And we will see lots of sacrifices go unnoticed, discarded, um, and completely disrespected. We are by no means a perfect people, not a one of us. It doesn't matter what country we live in or where we are from. But there are a few things that are universal to all things. We absolutely need Jesus Christ. And we cannot as a nation or as a people or as a church or as a household continue living the way we do if we take Jesus out of any equation of anything in what we do. And so this morning I'm going to invite you, regardless of what your politics are, to put those aside and remember the Lord Jesus Christ was the one who gave the full measure of devotion for each and every living human being. And it wasn't just about the freedoms that we enjoy to vote or to, to have free speech or for people to make decisions the way that they make, but it's for us to be free from the bondage of sin. And I pray that even as we remember our soldiers and those who have fought for our country today, we'll remember what Christ has done for us. That's why this morning I want to encourage you to, to uh, consider what Memorial Day really, really means. And as we've been talking about the family, we're going to bring it, uh, an end to our sermon series, Family Matters, this morning. Now, I've researched a little bit of Memorial Day, and it, it is many stories are out there. And one of them said that in 1865, as the Civil War was coming to an end, that there were 200 Union soldiers who were captured by the Confederates, and they were placed in a prisoner of war camp, and they were executed and placed into a mass grave. And after the Civil War came to an end, a lot of freed slaves dug those graves, that mass grave up, and gave an individual burial for each and every one of those Union soldiers. And then a parade followed after that that was led by more than 200 black children that were remembering the sacrifice made so that they might have a little bit more freedom than what they had in 1860. This Memorial Day was actually called Remembrance Day. And many people were remembering around the country, and there's different ideals of what that remembrance looks like and what that memorial looks like. And it wasn't until around the, the 30s and 40s, somewhere in there, that we actually put the last Monday in May to be Memorial Day. We made it a, a holiday. And sadly, that holiday went from just remembering our fallen soldiers who had given their lives for our freedoms, and it turned into a four-day weekend filled with grilling and uh, mattress sales and all that other stuff. And I do fear that if we don't remember things that 
gave us the right to ignore stuff that we ought to be remembering that we'll eventually forget them. You've probably all heard the stories before that if you don't know your history, it is doomed to repeat itself. And so it doesn't really matter if you like the history or agree with the history or whatever. You need to know the history that is out there. And there's no greater place that I have found to, to understand history of humanity than the scriptures themselves. And the scripture tells us that man really has not changed much, regardless of what your thoughts are on evolution. Man has not changed much. They are still born sinful and need a savior. And there is but one way to fix that, and that's through Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'm going to encourage you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Nehemiah was a um, leader, a governor. He was in captivity. He is part of the remnant of those who were exiled. And Nehemiah just had this calling from the Lord to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where the temple was. It was the place where Christ was crucified. And Nehemiah was in occupation, but God saw favor for him to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem in the promised land that was promised to the Jewish people, God's chosen people. And he made a way for the oppressing government that had held Nehemiah in bondage to pay for the rebuilding of the holy city of Jerusalem and for the Jewish people to come out of captivity and go back into the promised land. Now, that in itself is an amazing story that a captor would say, you know what, we're tired of holding you captive. In fact, we now want to pay for you to go back to where you are and live free. I mean, that's just a remarkable story when you read through the book of Nehemiah. But what Nehemiah runs into is what everybody runs into when they're trying to do a good thing. Yesterday, I was with some friends, and we were, we were repairing a, a, a two valves uh, under a sink for plumbing. And as we were repairing those, the guy bumped the P-trap. And so he just got back from going to Home Depot because he got the wrong size valves. And as he got the wrong size valves, he brings them back, and we notice, hey, the P-trap's leaking too. Guess what he gets to do? Go back to Home Depot, right? We're like, how did that happen? It's like, well, because it's old and it's brittle. And it just seems like, and we just got through laughing about no good deed goes unpunished, right? You know, you do a nice thing, and, and, and if you've ever done any home repair, you know the second you start on that home repair, you, you're, you're probably over your head as soon as the saw breaks out, right? Hey, I think if I just cut that wall out, I, I could probably fix this. Famous last words before you call a plumber. I can probably fix this. And I like to believe behind every good man, there's a woman behind him saying, you can do this. But I, I just realistically am thinking that on some of these second and third major home repairs, there's a woman behind him saying, you can't do this. And there's opposition that's on the front of that, right? And Nehemiah found opposition in rebuilding a wall for the city of Jerusalem. And so this morning, I, I want to ask you, when, when opposition comes, we have these fight or flee, or we have these different things that we can do, but what is our response whenever someone comes at us and opposes whatever our thought or ideal is? And really, more than anything, the, the, the general question I want to ask you this morning is, what is really worth fighting for? I mean, what, what really is worth fighting for? And when I say fighting for, I mean putting your reputation, I mean putting your resources, I mean putting... Uh, uh, how you stand in the community, I mean, putting relationships, I, I mean, even putting your life on the line. What is truly worth fighting for in your life? What really matters so much that you would literally put your life down or you would put your reputation down or it would cost you so much that, there, that it's, it's irretrievable. You can't go back to the way things were because you stood in the fight and everything fundamentally changed. This past year has been a very interesting year when you think about what people thought were worth fighting for or about. And there's been a whole lot of freedom from and not so much freedom of. 
And I could get into a lot of the different things that are out there. And I know that ideologically, many of us probably share some of the same bents and some of the same political things. But I think we also share some of the same sinful attitudes that are mixed in with some of that, if I'm being just perfectly honest. There is a fear, particularly among those who are on the the evangelical right, as we might hear in the political realm, that we have this this singular mindset and we think a certain way. Now, I just got news for you. It doesn't matter if you're evangelical right or if if you're liberal left or whatever. You're always going to have a group of people who have shared mindsets and shared group thinks, and they're always going to think that way. That will always be the case with humanity. And so I'm not here today to talk about what is right or what is wrong or this and this this, but I am here to, to, to tell you and perhaps convict you just a little bit to understand that some of the battles that we're fighting are not worth fighting. And it's because the goal of that victory is well off target. It makes little to no change in your life or the lives of others, particularly when we talk about eternal value. And so I'll ask the question again, what is really worth fighting for? What do you get into arguments about? What would you lose friends over? What would you put your resources into? What would you give your life for? Now for Nehemiah, the thing that was worth fighting more than, for more than anything else was to, to obey and to honor the calling that the Lord had on him to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem so that the Jewish people, the remnant that was left over after they'd been in captivity for 70 years, after they had occupied the, the promised land for 268 years and had violated every one of God's laws and they get taken away from this, his heart was to give his very life and devotion to rebuild that city so God's chosen people could dwell in the land that he gave to them that he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and all of the brothers after that. What about you? What hills are you dying on? What friends are you losing and then shaking your head and going, I really need to, was that really worth that? What ideological path have you decided is so important that you would alienate yourself or someone else because they think, act, believe, or do something different? Now, to be fair, There are things that you probably need to put on that list. There are things that are worth fighting for. But I think we really have to understand what those things are and the outcome of that. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, I want to start in Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 11 through 14. And what is happening here is that Nehemiah has assessed the city. It's in ruins. The walls have been torn down and burned, and there are people living in little villages outside of And so the city is completely in disrepair and not protected. And the work is going on, but there's some opposition that is there. And so here's what it says in Nehemiah 4, chapter 11, or verse 11 through 14. It says, also our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What's really worth fighting for? If you ever wanted to know biblically what was really worth fighting for these four or five verses right here would be a great place to start because in those few verses nehemiah defines exactly what's worth fighting for and so this morning i want to point out a couple things to you that i think we see from this passage but i think scripture speaks on boldly throughout its entirety and the first thing that i think 
that is worth fighting for is family. I think family is absolutely worth fighting for. You know, many of you know that I love movies and I, 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 I don't endorse some of the films that I watch. They entertain me because my mind does not have to engage. It's all emotion, not mental at all. But I love the Fast and Furious movies. I don't know what it is. It's the fast cars and the, the acrobatics that these cars do. I mean, I don't know how a 67 Chevelle does a 360 um, with an Ollie half pipe and then lands on all four wheels and doesn't break out any windows, but it's awesome. I mean, Dom is just the man, right? Um, I, I think before he learned how to drive a car, no one else knew how to drive a car. I, just, I love these movies. And, and, of course, they always morph, right? They're, they're flawed characters, every one of them. They're doing terrible things, but we've heroized them in such a way. But he has a line in Fast and Furious 6 at about one hour. No, I won't tell you where that is. Just, he has a line in this movie that he very clearly says after his family has been threatened and harmed, he says, you don't mess with a man's family. Man, that's a good line. I don't care what movie it came from. I mean, it could have been The Little Mermaid. You don't mess with a man's family. You don't mess with anybody's family. Mama bears, any of y'all out there? You ever have a parent mess with one of your kids? Gloves are off. I don't care if you go into the same church forever. You mess with my kid, and we're going to have a problem, a fundamental life-altering problem. Furniture is going to be moved if you mess with my kids. Dad's same way. Dad's what husbands, how about this? You just stand by idly and let someone disrespect your wife, particularly in public? Is it different when it's a stranger versus someone you know? I don't. What's worth fighting for? But let me ask you this. Are you fighting a battle just to win or to be the hero? Or are you fighting it because it is right? Not just it feels good or it feels right, but it is morally, it is ethically, and it is biblically the right thing to do. Husbands in particular, your job is to be a, a mere image of God the Father as he is to all of his children. You're to be the, 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 the sustainer, the protector, and the provider of your home. That is your job, like it or not. I love when I do weddings and I have a, a dad walk his little girl down the aisle, and I'll always ask him this question. I'll say, hey, do you remember when you walked down this aisle that you had no clue the responsibility that was gonna, about to be thrust upon you? But now that you've raised your little girl and you're about to, to hand her over to this young man who we all agree is not worth it. I usually have their attention by that point, right? I said, do you, do you now transfer all of those responsibilities of being the sustainer and the protector and provider of your little girl over to this knucklehead? Because that's what this transfer looks like. Because you don't stop being her daddy but these responsibilities are now different. Daughters out there, this is why your dads act the way they do. It is God ordained for them to love you like that. Because someday they want you to stand next to a knucklehead and be okay with that decision, even if they're not. This is why we ask the father for blessing whenever we're trying to take his little girl. We're not just saying, hey, can I marry her? We're saying, am I able to take the responsibilities of her and let man and woman leave mother and father and cleave together and become one, not just in the biblical sense, but absolutely in the biblical sense, that that is the responsibility of defending family. 
There's a responsibility of teaching our kids so that when they graduate high school and they go off into a world that is absolutely designed to harm them, I don't care what anybody else thinks about that, the world is not designed to say, oh gosh, you're a high school graduate and it's all in front of you and every decision you make has zero consequences, but it's going to be okay. There is nothing but lies that happen when they leave your house. Moms and dads, especially those of you who have college age or kids who are married now, you remember those weird cryptic conversations when they would finally call you, usually out of money, and you'd have to figure out how are they going to tell you why they have no money without owning the responsibility of saying I'm financially irresponsible? It's a tough world out there, isn't it? For those of you who have kids who live a little further away or go off to college, there is nothing more incapacitating for a father particularly than knowing that your kid is someplace that you can't get to. And you can't get there fast enough. Probably the greatest fight my mom and dad ever had. I was my freshman year of college, and I said, hey, we're going to go from Corsicana to Lubbock for the weekend, and I'm going to drive my car because I have the most reliable vehicle. And my mother was just all up in arms, and my dad looked at me, and he said something very sage-like, but I had no idea how very sadistic that man was. He says, son, you can go anywhere you want as long as you can get back. And my mother lost it. I mean, just blood pressure went through the roof, door slams, and the last words I heard was, you just told him he could go anywhere he wanted in the entire world. And dad said this, ah, he'll overthink. I was devastated by that because that dude was right. Mom is saying that I got this big permissive thing, and Dad is saying, ah, he'll overthink it. But somewhere collectively, the two of them had figured out that he's going to have to make some decisions, even the bad ones, and we're going to love him through that anyway. But Dad finally got a couple of years later and told me there's not any place on the planet that I could go that he would not come get me. But if I find myself in jail, I'm probably safer there. Friends, you'll do whatever it takes for family, won't you? And a dedicated enemy, particularly the ones in Nehemiah's time, will exploit your family against you every chance they get. Nobody fights better and worse than family does. Nobody knows how to hurt and to maim and to criticize and to neutralize better than family does. Now, what was going on during Nehemiah's time is all these people are outside in these villages, and the workers would come in, and they would rebuild this wall. And while they were rebuilding the wall, Sanballat and some of his other friends and the Arab nations that occupied that territory would come into town and engage in this psychological warfare. And they would tell all the vulnerable wives and children, hey, we're coming to get you. No matter which direction you look, we're going to be there. If you go to the east or to the west or anyplace else, we're coming to get you. Why don't y'all go into town there and tell Nehemiah that's rebuilding this wall, this, this wall full of rubble, that as long as he has your husband and your you think about how that psychological warfare really put a strain on God's calling for Nehemiah to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the place where Jesus would one day be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind. It was in the enemy's wheelhouse and in their plan, whether they knew it or not, to see that that never happened. And i got to tell you something. No plan of the enemy ever thwarts God's overall plan. There's nothing that the enemy can do can stop God from doing what he's going to do for us. Not a thing. And so the people went into town, and they said ten times over to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah did what every good leader does. He paused, 
and he stopped. And he thought about families for a moment. And he thought about the families of all these people. And he made a hard decision. And he said, we're going to continue to work on this wall. And that means that you're going to be vulnerable out there for a time. In the 1930s and early 1940s, there really wasn't a draft instituted. But thousands and thousands of young men volunteered to go fight in World War II. And as I was researching this week for this sermon, I was trying to figure out what is it about that generation, the greatest generation as we call them, that all of these young men would volunteer to go and fight. Now, some of the, the commentaries and some of the stories that I read said that there were so many people in the population and jobs were hard to come by. And some of these young men were just up for the adventure. And some of the marketing tools that the recruiters used talked about the adventure of a lifetime and go see the world and, and go do all these other things. But even at the root of all this, there was a great sense of patriotism and pride, not just in these United States, but the ideal of taking the fight to them before it shows up on our soil. The United States was very clear early on in World War II that there was no way that we were not going to be in that fight. We were trying to avoid it for as long as we could. And if Japan had been smart about their military tactics, they would have turned left after they bombed Hawaii and headed straight for the West Coast and probably could have moved in maybe as far as the Rockies, perhaps. They had a fuel problem, had some other issues from a, a, a tactician ideal, but they totally blew it and they woke up what they called the sleeping giant. Because thousands of young men volunteered to put their life on the line to go fight someplace else so the fight didn't show up in their hometown. And it left a lot of homes vulnerable and empty and vacant and without young men and without workers, and without people there to defend them. And family was important, but they made sacrifices for their family that said, I will leave this home for the moment and I will go fight there so the fight didn't come back here. That's exactly what was going on in Nehemiah's time. These people saw the calling of God to rebuild this great city, and they made their families a little bit vulnerable for the moment so that they could build the wall and protect it and move back into the city because God had called them to do so. And the enemy knew that, and he started with threats. Now let me ask you something. What's worth fighting for? Family is worth fighting for. And the nuclear family today, particularly in our free country of the United States of America is absolutely under attack every place we turn. We are redefining marriage no longer between one man and one woman. We are redefining what gender is and is not. We are redefining when life does and does not begin. And we are absolutely making a target of every human being, not just what they do believe, but what they don't believe. And cancel culture is not just built into one little area of our politics today. It's built into every area. Even preaching this message today is probably going to bring someone saying, hey, how can you say those things? It's bigotry. It's hatred. It's, it's, it's not tolerant. And you know what? It's a good thing that God's better than the rest of us because he has tolerated our nonsense for thousands and thousands of years. And we cannot begin to critique our creator believing he has made a mistake whenever he said one man and one woman. This is man and this is woman, and they're different in a lot of different ways. When saying that conception begins in the womb and that we should protect children at every stage of life because that's family, and that's what you do for family. But we get all political on these things, and we get all wrapped up about our ideologies, and we lose sight of what God has to say about the matter. 
and we bring emotions into the conversations and we check intellect at the door and then we get to yelling and screaming at each other and calling each other's names instead of seeing a little bit of mercy, a little bit of grace and just watching that no matter where you turn 10 times from the east or the west or the south or wherever, the enemy is coming at you some way, somehow. That's the world we live in today. And it's always been the world we live in. And Nehemiah, for a brief moment, paused and the building stopped. And that's the second thing I want to share with you this morning is that freedom is worth fighting for. Neutrality is just as effective as a full-on attack. There is probably nothing more dangerous to any team or unit or family or group or church or small group or anything else than people just being neutral about everything. Steve Farrar was a, uh, he's a, a pastor and an author, and he was a, a, a Vietnam veteran, and he's written a lot of books for men, uh, a lot of good Bible studies, and he wrote one called Point Man, and he talked about how he was running point when he was in Vietnam and how important it was for that person who was on point to respond accurately and correctly whenever the enemy attacked from the front because everybody behind them, their lives depended upon how he responded and reacted how alert that person was, how prepared they were. And everybody had to take turns being point man, not just because it was the most dangerous part on there, but it's because everybody had a reality that we trusted one another. We put our lives in each other's hands. And whoever was point man for the moment knew that whatever they did, they had to pay attention, and it would save everyone's life, even if it cost them their own. But the worst point man to have was the one who just didn't really care, the one who was neutral about things. The one who, didn't, who was tired of fighting and didn't realize why we were fighting. And it didn't matter what the ideological point was of fighting that war. It was about fighting for the person behind you and the person behind them and the person behind them. You've probably seen movies or read stories about going to sleep in foxholes after being awake forever and being shelled and all those things. And it was one of the most dangerous things that could happen because you just didn't know when the enemy was coming. Or those people just getting so shell-shocked, as they called it, or PTSD, as we call it today, had such difficulties because they would shift from a place to neutrality because it was the only way they could, could respond and answer to what was going on. I fear today that not only in our church, but also inside of our homes, that our leaders have become neutral on so many issues that we don't know what we stand for, only what we stand against. And that depends on how the tide is shifting at the moment. For a brief moment, Nehemiah stopped the work, and the enemy actually had gained some ground by getting them to stop working. They didn't even have to attack them. They just had to threaten to do so. And as they got them neutralized, they stopped them, and they were no longer free to continue working on. And Nehemiah had to stop for a minute and say, this is a bad plan. We're not going to do this. Instead, what I'm going to do is that piece that you were leveraging against me with family, I'm going to now use that as my strength. I'm going to place people on the low spots of the wall by families. And when they come, I want you to fight. I want you to fight for your families, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, many of us probably know this well, and it's oft misquoted, but it says simply this. It says, I know your deeds, says the Lord, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. It speaks to, to the uselessness of our decisions, not of who we are and what we can do, but what we've chosen not to do. When we're lukewarm, 
we have no value. The, the church there in Laodicea, they, they were known for their healing waters, the very cold that was refreshing, or the very hot and the mineral. And what would happen is at some point the two would mix together and neither one of them would do what they were supposed to do separately. And they tasted bad and they were not good for drinking or for health or for anything else. And this city was known for these things. But now what they're known for is being lukewarm. They've allowed to, to, to stand neutral against everything. Listen, there's a fight out there, folks. There's a fight each and every day for the things that matter to God. And God has placed us in his call and his charge to stand and get in the fight and to stop being neutral about the wrong things. If you want to know why we're, why we're battling all the issues of the day, don't blame politicians. Blame church people who aren't getting out and voting and influencing, but more than anything else, who are not on their knees fighting those battles and seeking the Lord's justice on these things. I'm a big fan of social justice ministries, but I got to tell you something. If they fall short of the gospel, they're nothing more than just good deeds, and I'm tired of doing just good deeds when people are still going to a real place called heaven. I'm tired of watching that happen in our United States. I'm tired of watching that happen in our churches. I'm tired of the neutrality for the gospel that we have embraced so strongly because we're afraid to speak up and afraid of what people are going to think about us. And the complacency that we have embraced is taking a generation out. COVID did something very interesting. We watched church attendance trends decline over the last 50 years. We're about 10 to 15 years ahead of where we thought we would be because of one year of COVID. People are not returning back to church because in the last year they've decided, well, you know what, if I could do without church for that long, it really wasn't that impactful for me. And you know what, I can appreciate that and I can respect that. I can also take ownership for that too. It's not because I'm here to entertain or to draw people in or make them love everything that's going on here. It's because they've not fallen in love with God's word enough to understand that this is not just something we feel good about on Sunday morning, that this is our field manual for life. This is the battle plan for what is happening there is no surprise of the enemy that's not listed in this book and no answer that God has not given us, but instead we're neutral about it. And God love you, and I do. Trust me, I do. You cannot just be satisfied what happens on Sunday morning if you're not doing the rest of the work the rest of the week. You can't be on one side for an hour and then be neutral for 167. I wish that you were one or the other. I'll spit you out. I can attest to Nehemiah on some level when I understand that what he saw was that these people were given the blessing of an oppressive government over them to go and do God's work, and now they're afraid to continue doing it. They were giving freedom from their, from their oppressor and funds by which to work, and now they're afraid of a couple of loudmouths out there on the edges saying, we're coming to get you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 tells us simply this, that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What's worth fighting for? Is it worth winning a point, winning an argument, shaming somebody? Is it worth yelling and screaming louder than the other person? Or the things that we're fighting for, the things that really matter, are they opening up the doorway to get off the neutral side and to get on the left or the right or the hot or the cold and to say that I am fighting this battle because it absolutely depends upon the souls of people who do not know Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I am absolutely for life. You all know that very strongly. 
I am absolutely in the belief that there are but two genders, male and female. I am absolutely under the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's not for people shacking up who are man and woman. Get married, seal the deal, call it good, let God bless that and see what he does for your family. But we are so permissive today in our society and we're getting charged up about saying this is wrong or that is wrong and we do look judgy and we do look rude and we do look like we're, we're pointing the fingers at all these people because we're missing the last point that really makes a difference, that we're missing the freedom that Christ has set us free for, that we can talk about all the things we're for or that we're against, but what we really, really ought to be doing is talking to people and saying the life that you have right now that is outside of God's plan, that is clearly defined in his word, is never going to bring you satisfaction and joy and completion. Only a relationship in Jesus Christ will do that. And so if all we do is just bash all those things that we're against, and we don't open doorways to bring Christ into the conversation and bring people to a place of true freedom, not just on our side of how we feel about things, then we're exchanging one hell for another. That's all we're doing. International Justice Ministries is a ministry that, that travels around the world, and they're doing a whole lot of things with human trafficking and sex trafficking. It's a great and noble ministry. And I sat down and I spoke with a man who was a SWAT team leader from L.A. who had left that and went to, to Calcutta, India. And in Calcutta, India, he was training the police how to raid these brothels and rescue four- and five-year-old children. He had perhaps one of the worst jobs on the entire planet. And as I sat with him and we spoke about how do you do this, and why do you do this? He says, every time I feel like I'm making a little bit of headway and I'm doing good, I realize that if all we do is rescue these children out of this horrible and terrible oppressive thing, which is good, and all we do is return them back to, a, to an environment that maybe doesn't have all those other negative elements but does not know Jesus, then all I have done is exchanged one hell for another. It's not either or, it's both and. And in the fight that we find ourselves in all the time today, it's not both and. It's just short of getting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just short of saying you don't have to live that way. Not because I don't like it, not because there's a certain segment of our society that turns their nose up and looks down on that, because Christ himself put himself on a cross to cover your sins so you don't have to be worried about your identity crisis anymore because who you are is not what you do or what you believe unless it's in Jesus Christ. He is defining who you are. Not your own identity or your own gender. Not your own politics. Not whatever. Anything short of Jesus is basically neutral at best. You're not even necessarily against him. You're just absolutely not for him. What's worth fighting for? What do we get all charged up about every couple of years in our politics? The freedom we fight for is not political, and it shouldn't be. And it's really hard to get wrapped up in those things. But it doesn't matter if I stand on one side or the other of politics, but I don't have Jesus in that equation. Because I got news for you, in case you don't know this, this is going to be a shocker, write it down. Our elected government officials are not necessarily good, godly examples of the people that we hope we can be. I know. Mind blown. They are flawed human beings in need of a Savior just like each and every one of us. They just have more microphones and a bigger Twitter account. But they are just as lost and in need of the love and salvation of Jesus Christ as every other individual person on this planet. 
And yeah, they charge us up and get under our skin and say things that make us angry. But do they make you angry enough to where you'll actually get on your knees and ask how I can turn this in to being neutral and just upset and off task? Or how do I turn this into an opportunity to tell people about Jesus? How do I do that? It does start with us. God, I'm mad about that. God, I'm upset about that. God, I'm angry about that. I don't know about you, but I, I feel like I can, I can hear God saying, really, this is what you're angry about? And, and your option is just to yell and scream and get people on your side because misery doesn't love company, it loves miserable company? And so instead of trying to elevate everyone to a place where they can walk in the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, you're trying to bring everybody down to be as angry and frustrated as you are? If cancel culture has taught us anything, it tells us that no one is safe, that today you're friends with whatever that ideal is, but tomorrow you are the target. That is the same thing with every emotional thing we ever do. I don't care what you call it. What Nehemiah saw here was he stopped for just a moment the work stopped, and then he said, wait a minute, this is a bad idea. We didn't, we didn't come all the way out here just to not do the work and to worry about who's saying what around us. We did come out here to rebuild this city, to bring God glory, and to protect a place and provide a place for our families and this generation and the next generation so that the temple that, that Ezra rebuilt can be worshipped in and the people will know the one true God and they will know that there's a God in Israel. We didn't come out here just to stand around and do that. And so here's what you're going to do. You're going to stand by the low spots in the wall because the enemy knows your weak spots, so you better know them too. And when they come to those weak spots, you're going to have your bows and your spears and everything else, and you're going to fight and you're going to defend on a moral ground because your family's lives literally depend upon it. That's what's worth fighting for. Finally, he says to us this, and this is what I've been saying over and over today, is that you are worth fighting for. I don't know if you know what the term dysmorphia is, but dysmorphia is essentially, in a lot of ways, it's, it's a, a way of looking at ourselves and accepting the lie that there's something wrong with us, whatever the case may be. It, body dysmorphia is a really big thing right now. I don't like the way I look. I look this way to people. People judge me for this, 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 this. Gender dysmorphia is getting more and more prevalent today. Uh, I was really born as a woman. I'm not comfortable in my body as a man, so that has to change too. And all that really is is those, those people that come into the village and whisper in your ear, I'm coming to get you. And when they get you neutralized to a place that they no longer have to do anything, because like it or not, Satan does not have the power that we think he has over us. And he doesn't need to just set and just constantly needle us. He just has to get us in our own head doing nothing and be neutral. And when he does that, he can go on to the next one because he doesn't have the omnipotence that our Lord God Almighty has. And when we're our own worst enemy and we don't like the way we look or the way we feel or the gender that we are, the color of our hair or how big our eyes are or how big our teeth are or how big our feet are or how tall we're not or how short we are, when all those things come into play and we attack ourselves, one little criticism from the outside validates that lie. And it's awful what people are doing to themselves these days. It's terrible what they're doing to themselves these days, particularly because what Christ came to do for all of humanity I say this out loud, and humor me, you know how much I love that. I'm worth Jesus dying for. Say it out loud. Say it. I am worth Jesus dying for. Christianity is really not that difficult. 
it's an understanding of where we stop and Jesus starts. And if you really want to know where that place is, it's at conception. I knew you. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Go and do and tell others. On this Memorial Day, we think about all those soldiers who never took the uniform off, who, who died in uniform, giving us the freedoms that we have to gather like we are today, to, to go the places that we're going to go, to buy the grill of the, the cheap mattress, to argue that steaks are cheaper at Sam's than they are at Walmart, to go to graveyards and to see fallen soldiers and their families and the wreaths that are there see an individual you never met your entire life and realize that I never met that person and they died for me. That's exactly the story of Christ. The problem is that he knows us, we just don't know him. You're worth fighting for. As Nehemiah stood there and the people were giving him a hard time and he's trying to figure out what he should do, he had this beautiful epiphany in verse 14. And it is this profound statement that he makes in verse 14. If you still have your Bible open, great. If you don't, I'm going to read it out to you. But it says this. Says, he says, after I looked things over, after I stopped, took a breath, I stood up, I led like I was supposed to lead, and I said to everyone who had responsibilities, the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid. Sometimes it just takes somebody standing up and saying, you do not have to be afraid of that. You do not have to be ruled by that. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, who is great and is awesome. And fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When we remember the Lord and that he is on our side, we see two of the strongest characteristics of an all-knowing, all-loving God who deals with us in a very fair and loving manner. And we see that he is great and he is awesome. And there is no God greater than or better than him. And there is nothing more awesome more awful, if you will, in its proper sense, than the glory of the Lord God Almighty, who has made himself like one of us, who dwelt amongst us and lived a sinless life to die for the sins of all humanity because we're worth fighting for. Because we're worth every drop of blood that spilled down the cross that day. Because we're worth it, and until God calls an end to this world, there are so many people who have this spiritual dysmorphia who are buying into the lie that they're not worth it, that they're not good enough, and that God doesn't love them. I think as long as we have life and we have breath, we have purpose. And we squander that all the time because we miss out on the reality that Christ died for us and we're worth it. We don't deserve it. That's a true statement. But the precious blood of Jesus Christ is better than a layaway plan because he wants everything he paid for with every drop of blood. And that means you. And that means me. And that means the thousands of people in Katy, Texas who don't think the way we think and don't believe the way we believe and don't practice the way that we practice and are fundamentally opposed to some of the things that we believe in both biblically and in the rest of our worlds, they still need to know that they are worth a Savior dying on the cross for and conquering death to give them hope and a future for all of eternity. What is worth fighting for? 
Deuteronomy chapter 3, whenever Moses was talking to, to all the people who, were, who, were, who just got through fleeing away from all the Egyptians, he says this in, in verse 30, uh, 22 in chapter 3, says, Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. So many times we take this burden that I need to go out and be right. I need to go out and be impressive. I need to go out and I need to, I need to fight because I'm the Lord's mouthpiece. I'm his instrument. I got, I got news for you. If you're not speaking his truth, you're a resounding gong. You're an annoyance. You absolutely don't look like your savior. Our words should be seasoned with salt. Doesn't, doesn't mean that we're pacifist and we just lay down and let people run over. So, oh, they're Christians. We could just mow over. No, that means we stand on the principles of the Lord God Almighty, who is great and awesome and will fight our battles for us because the victory is already his. And that might mean that we lay down our lives. That might mean that we lay down our politics. That might mean that we lay down our preferences. That might mean that we lay down our pride. That might mean that we make sacrifices so that others might know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and know that they're worth fighting for. There is a whole lot, particularly about the evangelical right, that is very unappealing to a lost and dying people out there who neither care about our politics or our Savior because they've never met either. When you consider a Memorial Day, how many people gave their lives for the freedoms that we squander, for our religious freedoms, and yet we don't share the gospel with those who need it the most, I think we're doing a bad job remembering the sacrifices made. I also think that makes us human. It doesn't give us a pass. It just helps us understand who we are a little better. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord. If there was ever a place in Scripture where you could go and say, what's worth fighting for? It would be fight for the Lord who knows that I'm worth it that he would fight and give the ultimate sacrifice for me and fight for my families so that the next generation has a better shot at this world and this life than what I do is that they will know the love of Jesus Christ and that no matter how our lives come to an end, whatever day that may be, that we will be with him forever in paradise. Remember what you're fighting for and remember who is fighting for you. This morning as we come to an end and we pray I think perhaps maybe that's a good place for us just to stop and ponder a minute when was the last time I actually recognized that God has been fighting for me every bad decision I make <laughs> I only laugh because that's the only response I kind of have some days it's like man it's like you let me make that bad decision but yet you did not negate your love for me and it broke your heart to watch me do it over and over and over again and eventually I stopped remembering a God who loved me. A lot like parenting, isn't it? <laughs> There's not anything a mama bear wouldn't do for her babies, is there? Where do you think she gets that from? An all-knowing, all-loving creator who would do everything for his. Let's fight the good fight. Let's get in the right fight. And for heaven's sake, let's keep our mouth shut about the things that don't have eternal value. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we bless you. 
Father, we do remember those who gave their lives for our nation so that we might have the freedoms to do and to say and to be who we are today. And Father, even in the, the, the risk of sounding more tolerant in a world that, that desires neutrality over truth, we still acknowledge that you have told us that we're worth dying for, that we're worth the fight. God, I know in this room today that there are some who, who, who are challenged by some of the things that were said. I get that. I'm okay with that. Father, I, I know that, that in this room that there are a, a variety of life experiences and choices and relationships and friends. And some of these things are really hard because how do I show that I'm loving but not condoning of sin but not condemning of the sinner? So, Father, I pray first and foremost that our relationships will be right with you so that they might see our good deeds as our light shines and they would glorify you, Father. That, that the example that we have, even when we disagree, would not be one of anger and bitterness and resentment, power and authority. Instead, it would be meekness. It would be loving kindness. It would be patience, Lord. So that's all that you've shown us continue to do so. Father, we, we remember you because you are great and awesome and you love us unconditionally and we thank you for that. So much so that despite our sins, your son Jesus died for us. And so we ask these things in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to continue to sing and just contemplate that. And I pray that you do have a good Memorial Day weekend. Remember the sacrifices made for you both by those who fought for your freedoms and the one who died so that you might be set free. Let's sing.